Amen. Good morning, Journey. Hey, I want to introduce you today or uh, possibly review with you today um, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm is that big book right in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have your Bibles today, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. Today is a day, trust me, you want to have a Bible in your hands. We're going to read 24 of the greatest verses that have ever been written, and then we're going to kind of break them down. So if you don't have a Bible today and you want one, just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one. You can keep this one. If you don't know where yours is, put your name in it. Uh, and I challenge you to read the rest of the book of Psalms. But today, as I introduce you to this chapter, let me reintroduce you to our series. We've been studying the life of David since Memorial Day weekend. David, who killed Goliath, we know him kind of as a giant killer, But we've been studying the life of David this summer, not so we can learn how to kill giants, but so that we can see a picture of what somebody who God said loved him deeply looks like. The Bible says that David had a heart for God uh, at our church as we seek to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world, kind of that phrase, passionate Christian. We're we're trying to teach people how to have a heart for God. And sometimes seeing a picture is is easier than learning a lesson um, or being taught. So we've been looking at the life of David and, and the picture of David. Now, if you haven't already, reach in the back of your bulletin and pull out your sermon notes so that you can follow along. And let me give you just a brief overview of the Psalms that you can take some notes on before we dig in to Psalm 139. The book of Psalms has 150 chapters in it which means by just sheer chapter length, it's the longest book in the Bible by chapters. It has far more chapters than any other book in the Bible. Uh, It's interesting that in the book of Psalms, both the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, has 175 verses is in the Bible, and the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117, which has only two verses. If, If you were hoping to read a chapter of scripture today before you go to bed and you don't have a lot of time, read Psalm 117. It'll take you like four seconds, two verses. Uh, we know that Moses wrote Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. So we see a lot of great wisdom from great men of God. Solomon wrote Psalm 72, but David is believed to have written between 73 and 78 of the 150 Psalms, which means more than half of the book of Psalms comes from the heart of David. And here's, here's the reality of this summer. All summer long, we've been studying the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And if you want to learn about the life of David, you should study 1 and 2 Samuel. But if you want to learn about the heart of David, you should study the book of Psalms. And today we jump into Psalm 139, not to really learn anything about the life of David, but to learn about the heart of David Because this is how David is remembered in Israel. David is not remembered. Uh, I've been to the Valley of Elah where David killed Goliath. Um, There's a a place in Jerusalem where King David's tomb is kind of commemorated and celebrated. And nowhere in Israel can I find a statue of David with a sling killing a giant. However, when you go to King David's tomb in Jerusalem, you see David with a harp. And if you look at the front of your bulletin, when you go into the city of David, old Jerusalem is being excavated as we speak, just south of New Jerusalem, and stamped on almost every wall of the old city is a harp. David is remembered by the people of Israel as the psalmist, as a songwriter, as a worshiper, as as the person who really taught us what it was like to have a heart for God and to worship God. And in Psalm 139, I know a lot of people think that Psalm 23 is maybe the greatest psalm. I believe Psalm 139 is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. And here's what David says in Psalm 139. We'll read through the the 24 verses, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to look at six specific reflections David made that are going to 
Help us understand how to have a heart for God. Listen to what David says in Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, and you're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Verse 13, for you created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are rebelling against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Verse 23, but search me, God, and know my heart. And test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, I've titled our Bible study this morning, Reflections of Trust. And here's my hope for you as you listen to this message today and as you follow along. I don't think that anyone in here is going to have kind of a radical moment with God with all six of these areas. But I believe everyone here today probably came in with a concern, um, with a question, with maybe a hope about where your future is going. I believe everyone walked in here today with a trust issue spiritually. And I don't know what your trust issue looks like or kind of where your trust issue has come from or where it's going to lead you, but I believe everyone here today has some some sort of spiritual trust issue. I know that I do. And what David has done for us is he's given us six areas where we can trust God, six things we can know about God that even when our spirit is unsettled, Our mind spiritually can know this about God. And my hope today is that one of these things that you learn, you'll remember for the rest of your life, that day you showed up on a rainy Sunday, the first Sunday of August, 2014, and you learned this thing about God that you never forgot, and it becomes an anchor in your soul. So what are these six reflections of trust as we look through Psalm chapter 139? The first thing David said he trusted spiritually in verses one through four is that he was known by God. David said, I'm confident, I trust that I am known by God. Now, some of you walked in here and you're wondering, based on just the last week of your life, if God knows what's going on. And you're wondering, based on like this summer or maybe this year, like you've driven down the road or you've laid in bed and you have thought, I wonder if God knows what's going on. Does God possibly have any idea 
what's going on in my life right now. And David said, I have to trust that God knows me. Look at verses one through four. David said, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. Listen, the intimacy with which God is acquainted with you and I is stunning. I mean, when we look at what David trusts about how God knows him, it really is mind-blowing. And I want you to start in verse 4, and I want you to work towards the top with me about what we find out about how God knows us. David says in verse 4 that God doesn't just know the words we speak. He knows the words we're thinking about speaking. He actually knows what we're going to say before we say it. Some of you have been married long enough that you can now finish each other's sentences. Some of you work with people that you can, without even speaking, you can make eye contact across the table and know what one another's thinking. God knows you that well. He can finish your sentence. You really don't even have to speak. If you nod at him, God knows exactly what you're thinking. Verse 3, if we can continue working ourselves up the page, David said, God, I believe you're familiar with all of my ways, with everything going on in my life. With the good thing that happened this week, I believe that God knows about it. With the terrible thing that happened this week, I believe that God knows about it. With my job security or my job insecurity, with my great employment or my unemployment, with my marriage, with my kids, God, I believe everything going on in my life, you're aware of. He says that the first part of verse 3, you know my going, literally, you know when I leave every day and where I go, and you know when I come home and lie down. You know my sleep patterns. In verse 2, as we work our way up, he says, you know what I'm thinking, even before I think it. He says, you know when I sit, you know when I hang out and rest, and you know when I rise and get up and get going. And if we look at the last half of verse 1, David says, God, you know me. But I would ask this question, how does God know you so well? Because the answer is in the very first thing that David said in Psalm 139.1. You know how God knows you so well? Because he searched you. He's thought about you. He spends time looking at your life and he wants to be a part of your life. The intimacy with which God is acquainted with you is stunning, but it's because God has spent so much time pursuing your life. Let me ask this question. Do you think that if we sought to know God as God seeks to know us, that it would change everything in our life? I mean, do you think if we tried to understand the thoughts of God, the mind of God, the words of God, when God gets up, when God rests, do you think if we tried to get familiar with all of God's ways that it would radically change our life? Because I do. And this is specifically what God told Joshua to do. In Joshua 1.8, Joshua was the first person in Scripture who ever had one of these, any portion of the Word of God. He had Genesis through Deuteronomy. And here's what God told Joshua he needed to know in order to be familiar with all God's ways, he said, keep this book of the law always on your lips and meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do everything written in it. Now, this word meditate is a terrible word picture for us in the English because if I were to give you today the task of going home and meditating, the picture we have in our head is kind of sitting down Indian style, crossing our fingers, lighting some incense, and maybe humming while we think out loud. Like We think of meditation kind of as an Eastern kind of religion thing that they do. That's not the word picture of meditate in scripture. The word picture of meditate in Joshua 1.8 is the picture of a cow eating something. 
Y'all know how a cow processes food? You know, a, a cow has four stomachs. I don't know if you know that. Some of you, like me, grew up in farming country, and you're aware of that. And a cow, when a cow eats, a cow will bend over and he'll eat grass, he'll eat stray, he'll eat haul, he'll eat whatever you throw in the, the food bin for him. And a cow will eat, and when he swallows, the food goes into his first stomach. And it stays in that first stomach until all the nutrients that that first stomach needs are pulled out of the food so that the cow has them for use. And then y'all know what a cow does, right? What's a cow do? Throws up the food in its mouth and it starts chewing on it again. We call this chewing the cud. And a, and a cow will chew on this and the food will go in their second stomach. And all the nutrients that the second stomach of the cow needs will be extracted from that food. And then you know what will happen with the part of that food that's left? The cow will throw it up in its mouth and it will eat it again. And it will go into the third stomach and the third stomach will pull out a different part of the nutrients of the food. Same thing happens, fourth part of the stomach and then eventually the cow will be done. But that's why if you look at a cow, they always seem to be chewing on something. And we even use this vernacular in our language when we talk about something that's been on our mind or something that's been bothering us. We say, man, you know, I've just been chewing on this like all day long. It doesn't mean you've been chewing on it. It means you've been thinking about this and processing it over and over and over again. God says, you want to know me like I know you? Begin to meditate on the things of God. And when something happens spiritually, I want you to swallow that up, but don't process it. Swallow it up. Then I want you to, to throw it up, and I want, you to, I want you to chew on that a little more. And I want you to process a different part of that for your life and, and maybe figure out exactly what that means for you, but don't let it leave your system yet. I want you to bring it back up, and then I want you to think about maybe what it means for your kids. And I want you to chew on that scripture and what it means to your children, but don't process it yet. When you're done with that, I want you to kind of bring it back up, and I want you to chew on what that means for your neighbors and for the people that you work with. And God says, if you will meditate on the things of God, we can search and know God the way that God searches and knows us. And David said, there's one thing I'm sure of. I'm sure that God knows me. Secondly, David said, I'm sure that God protects me. Psalm 139 tells us that we're known. Psalm 139 tells us that we're protected. Look at verses 5 through 12. This is probably my favorite part of this psalm. David says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, and it's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. You know one of the most common themes in scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the very first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. You know one of the most common themes in Scripture is God's protection? It's one, of the, it's one of the things that's emphasized the most in Scripture, that God will protect you. You know what's crazy, though? If you read that same Genesis through Revelation from the viewpoint of man rather than the viewpoint of God, do you know one of the greatest worries by great men of God in Scripture and great women of God in Scripture was God's abandonment? So if you, just, if you just read the Bible as a book looking for those two themes, what you're going to find is God always saying, I'll be with you, and men always saying, are you sure? We see this theme play out in Scripture that God is always promising people that he'll protect them, and people are always worried that God will leave them. And some of you are in here today, 
And your greatest worry in life is that maybe God's not going to protect you and what's going on in your life. Look at verse 5. Because verse 5 gives us one of the greatest realities in the history of Scripture spiritually about God's protection of us. Verse 5 says, you hem me in behind and before. Circle those two words, behind and before. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Circle the word upon. Behind, before, upon. Behind, before, upon. David says, God, I feel like I'm protected behind, before, and upon. What does this mean? David is saying, God, everything in my past that I'm worried about, you've taken care of. Everything behind me, God has taken care of. God, everything in my future that I'm worried about, that I don't know how it's going to turn out. God, everything before me, you're going to protect and then upon, and God, everything that's on me today, like the worries of my life today that will only exist in this 24-hour cycle, God, today, you're going to protect me. Behind, before, upon. The best picture of this is when Moses and the Israelites were fleeing the Egyptians, and God said, I'm going to protect you. And there's a point where you look at the people of Israel and God from behind them has built a wall of fire that the Egyptian army cannot penetrate. And God before them has opened the Red Sea so that they can go through. And God in the man of Moses is upon them at the very same time. God says, I got your back. I got your front. I got you. You need to learn the phrase, God's got it. Because God has got it. Say the phrase, God's got it. Say it again, God's got it. Your past. Your past. God's got it. He's got it. Now listen, we're all going to suffer with the consequences of poor decisions that we made. But the spiritual reality of your past is God's got it. Your future. God's got it. Thank you, Jeffrey. He's at least one guy's with me. Your future. God's got, listen, I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know what's going to happen next year. I don't know what the next three to five years holds for everyone. I just know God's got it. God's going to protect your future. And today, God's got it. I don't know what's going on today, but I know God's got it. David says, I'm protected behind, before, upon. Do you know that the Bible says the words, fear not, 365 times, one for every day of our calendar year. It's one of the greatest facts in scriptural history. 365 times God says, fear not. It's as if God every morning says, don't worry. Had a person on the way out of the first service say, what about a leap year? I said, you're screwed that day. One day every four years, you should be very afraid. But the non-leap years, God's got it. Fear not 365 times. You know what this tells me? It tells me we serve a reassuring God. It shows me that whatever you came in with today that God has already told you in your past, he's got, but you're still worried about it. God's saying, I'm not angry. You're still worried. Let me reassure you. I got it. But God, I made this mistake. I got it. But God, I've got this big decision. I got it. But God, today I have to do. I got it. David says, I'm known. David says, I'm protected. David says, number three, I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Man, I love verse 13 of Psalm 139. David says, you created 
my inmost being. And you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In verse 13, I need you to circle the words inmost being. Some translations say inward parts. Some translations say inner parts. But the most correct English translation of this is inmost being, which really translates our soul. That's what David's saying. David's saying, you created within me a soul. Our inmost parts are not our DNA. David isn't saying, you gave me this DNA. You gave me blonde hair and blue eyes. David's not saying, you, you coded my genetic code to like ketchup instead of mustard or football instead of baseball. David's not saying anything about likes or dislikes or predispositions. David's saying, my soul has been crafted by you. And it's inside of me. And according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, our soul was created in us to reflect the image of God. The Bible says in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them and he created them in God's image. Literally, your soul is the mirror of your life that reflects God instead of you. And, and I hear people say all the time, well, you know, this is just, you know, God made me and God's works are wonderful, um, so I am wonderful. That's, the Bible's not really saying that. The Bible's saying that God put a soul in your life. And when that soul reflects the image of God, man, it's perfect. It's as close to perfect as you can get on planet Earth. When the life that you live in your physical bodies reflects the image of God in your soul, David says it's wonderful. Like this is the goal of life, to allow the inmost part of our life, to allow our soul to be so filled with God that everything in our life responds to who God is and reflects who God is. David says when that happens, he said, I know full well this is a good thing. David was 100% confident that if he could allow God's spirit in his soul to make every other decision that he would ever make, he knew that it would work out perfectly for the glory of God because he was fearfully and he was wonderfully made to be like God and to reflect God. Fourthly, David said, I'm loved. Now, this is where some of you might break down in the equation. You think, man, if God really knows everything about me, and if God really has lived life trying to protect me and I've been running away, and if God really has given me a soul, but I've kind of rejected God from being in that soul, wouldn't God hate me? David said just the opposite is true. God loves you. Look at verses 17 and 18. David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. You know, I read this in a dozen different English translations this week, and then I went back and I, and I studied it in the old Hebrew to figure out exactly what David was saying here, because a couple different translations sound different. Here's what David was saying. The thought of God thinking about him was precious to David. When David stopped to think that God thought about him, that like put David in a good place spiritually. But not all of us have the heart of David in this manner. And let me give you kind of an illustration to present this point. 
because it, it shows us how we see God and how we see our interactions with God. If you can picture like a seven-year-old little boy, right? If you can picture a seven-year-old little boy sitting in the hallway outside a principal's office waiting to see the principal at school, and you can picture the same little boy at seven years old sitting outside Santa's workshop in the mall getting ready to go visit Santa, do you think he has a different disposition waiting to see the principal than he does waiting to see Santa? See, some of us, if we, were to, if we were to have a friend come up to us and say, hey, I overheard God talking about you, most of us, our first reaction would be like, oh, oh no, what did, what did he say? What does he know? We have a predisposition towards God that the thought that God knows everything about us, that, that we don't like that because we don't even like everything about us. But David's saying the thought of God, when I, when I hear that God's been talking about me, thinking about me, David said, that puts me, that, that's precious to me. That, that puts me in a really good place because he sees God as a benevolent God who wants to bestow gifts on him. And David says, when I think about God thinking about me, that, that's really precious to me. The word precious translates very valuable or important. Too valuable or important to be wasted or used carelessly, greatly loved, valued, or important. So the reality is God has thought about all of you today. And some of you have carelessly wasted that. And it doesn't even matter to you that that's a reality. But David is saying, when I get up every day and I think, hey, God is aware of me today. God's got this. David said, that puts me in a really good spot. And what we find out is that God's loving nature allowed David to feel extremely close to God. The fact that there's this all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God in our life was not scary to David. It wasn't a turnoff to David. It wasn't intimidating to David. It made David feel very close to God because he understood the nature of God. But then we get into like the weirdest part of this psalm, right? Like you get into this poetry about how wonderful God is. And it's like, I love God and I love flowers and the sun and the moon. And then David's like, no, I hate people. And it's like, what did, what is that right there? And like in verses 19 through 22, there's this interruption of this love affair between David and God. And as I studied this this week, I thought, what's going on? So I began to study what some scholars had written about Psalm 139. And in the middle of David trying to establish trust with God, he stated this fact about life. And I love this honesty. David said, I'm worried about wickedness. Like I know God knows me and I know God protects me. And I believe I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And I believe God loves me. But I'm like, I'm worried about all the wickedness in the world. And how it seems to be getting in the way of me connecting to God. Look at verses 19 through 22. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak evil of you, God, with evil intent. Your adversaries, they misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I, I count them my enemies. David said, I'm, I'm trying to live life so close to God, but wickedness keeps getting in the way. The wickedness of the world keeps getting in the way of my ability to just trust God. And man, isn't this true? I mean, isn't this absolutely true? We, we try to trust God. We try to lean into God. We try to love God. And then we have somebody 
just who's overcome by wickedness, who disappoints us and let us down. Like we try to know God and trust God and love God in our marriage and then our spouse just does something sinful and it's all over and done with. We try to love God, we try to know God, we try to trust God and then some evil outside influence works its way into the life of our kids. I mean, on a personal basis, we get this. We go to work every day, we try to work hard and then we realize the president of the company's been scamming money and all of a sudden, we lost a job. We didn't even do anything but somebody. David says, the wickedness of the world bothers me. And man, I don't know about you, but I'm bothered by the wickedness in our world. Like I look at what's going on on a global scale right now and I'm worried. Like as a dad of a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, I'm worried I think about having grandkids one day if God blesses me with that, and I'm worried about the wickedness of the world. I see what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine right now and in the old Soviet bloc. That worries me. I I see some Russian separatists who shoot down a passenger airliner at this point without like any repercussions, and that worries. I worry about getting on a plane and flying internationally. I see this terrorist in Africa, Boko Haram, who's kidnapping girls who he doesn't want to get any education, and that bothers me, worries me. I see the current war between Israel and the Hamas terrorist network operating out of the Gaza Strip and all the innocent Palestinian women and children who are being killed on a daily basis in the midst of that conflict, and that bothers me. I'm worried about that. I see where America is headed with just nothing's wrong, everything's right, nothing matters. It worries me. And David said, man, God, in my quest to trust you, like I look around at the world and I get really worried. Like it's kind of hard sometimes to trust God when there's so much going wrong. But David comes back in number six and he says, however, I'll trust you. Like I'm worried about wickedness and I'm concerned with how wickedness impacts my proximity to God. However, I have no choice but to trust God. In verses 23 and 24, two of the greatest verses in all the Bible, David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, the note that I've written for you here is just me thinking out loud. It's not real educational. It's not real, um, you know, it's, it's not written from kind of a professional communication standpoint. But I'm reading about David transitioning from wickedness to trust. And here's the thought I had as I read verses 23 and 24. It's crazy. It's crazy how quickly David shifted his focus from what was wrong in the world to what was wrong in him. And it's crazy how quickly we do the opposite. Like David, David in Psalm 139 is on this quest to pull closer to God and he kind of, he begins to hit the brakes and he says, God, I'd like to be close to you, but all this wickedness, and like you can get off on a tangent of wickedness in the world long enough to get distracted. And David somehow pulls right back and he says, I know all this stuff's wrong in the world, but he like puts on the brakes and he says, but I can't change any of that. All I can do is change me. So God, don't worry about the wickedness in the world. Find the wickedness in me and deal with it. Now, I don't know about every other culture in the world, but I believe the American church has become famous at highlighting the wickedness of the world while ignoring the wickedness of of our own soul. Like we are pros about talking about the wickedness of the world 
without ever talking about the wickedness in us. But we see that David was not only okay with, but he was actually adamant that God would change anything in him that was offensive spiritually. Like David told God, listen God, I not only want you to find everything in me that's wrong spiritually, I give you permission to change it. Just whatever is wrong with me spiritually, you fix it. David was not only okay with saying, I got issues, but he was okay with saying, all my issues need to be fixed. You know, so often we, we don't like to, Jesus said in Matthew 5 or 6, we actually, we, we like to see a speck in someone else's eye while ignoring the plank in our eye. Like, we really like to show other people what's wrong with them without realizing what's wrong with us. David was not only okay with God finding out what was wrong with him, he was okay with him, whatever it meant, David said, just fix it. If you find anything wrong in me, God, just fix it. And what we find in verse 24 is David's final comment was as a follower, faithfully following a God that he trusted. He didn't say, God, find, find what's wrong in me and let me know what you think. He didn't say, find what's wrong with me and tell me how you might fix it. He didn't say, find what's wrong with me and let me know whether or not you want me to fix it. He just said, it's, it's like taking your car to someone that you trust when the engine goes bad and just saying, I know you're not going to rip me. Just fix everything. So, well, you want me to call you if I find something else? No, I trust you. Just fix everything. David literally gives his life to God and says, God, just fix everything. Regardless of what it costs, regardless of what it changes, regardless of what gets shifted around, God, here's my life. Just fix everything. I trust you. Now, let me ask you this question this morning. What trust issue are you dealing with this morning? that you need to give to God. And just trust him. Give it to God and say, God, my future, just do it your way. I trust you. God, my past that I've been trying to run from, not gonna run anymore. Just whatever you think is best. God, today, the thing I've gotta do, just God, just show me what to do today. Whatever you think is best, God. With my marriage, whatever you think is best. With my kids, God, whatever you think is best. With my finances, God, whatever you tell me to do. We see in David reflections of trust that, that say, I just, I'm worried about wickedness in the world. I do worry that sometimes God's not with me, even though he keeps reassuring me that he is. But we see in David someone who says, God, if you will just show me what to do, I'll do it. We see someone who unequivocally trusted God. What do you need to trust God with today? Because if you'll show me your marriage, I'll show you your trust. If you show me how you parent, I'll show you your trust. If you show me how you spend your money and give, you, give your money, I'll show you your trust. See, our life shows a lot about our trust. And our spiritual surrender shows a lot about our trust. And my promise to you today from Psalm 139 is that if you will let God take your soul into his shop and just tell him to fix everything, it might look different when it comes out but it'll be better and it'll reflect the glory of God in you in such a way that people might begin to know God like you know God. Let's pray together.